that Solomon ends chapter 6 with. And so Pastor Dana did a great job last week walking us through Ecclesiastes chapter 6 and highlighting the different rhetorical questions that Solomon asks and then how he takes aim at the three major and staple ideas of prosperity within a Hebrew society. Longevity of life, wealth and possessions, and multiple ancestors or a, or a large number of generations that follow you. That, that's how you knew whether or not you were doing well. Do you have money? Did you live a long time? And do you have a lot of kids? We perhaps would define those things differently in today's world than they did. But then he begins to identify and take aim at how it is, it is, it is really just a, a, a terrible, terrible end for somebody if they have those things, but they find themselves being unsatisfied. And he uses some really graphic language to try to communicate that. And the, the language of a, of a stillborn child being better than the guy who lived 2,000 years and had hundreds of descendants because he was unsatisfied. And so what Solomon does then at the end of chapter 6 is he ends with two rhetorical questions which sets up then the beginning part of chapter 7. Now as we get into chapter 7, and then we'll see this again in chapters 10 and 11, where we are going to be and what we're going to see Solomon do is he's going to begin writing very similarly in style, in tone, and really in content to what he does in the book of Proverbs. So if you, if you even just look at how Ecclesiastes chapter 7 is laid out in your Bible, it probably looks a whole lot more like the book of Proverbs than we've had yet in the book of Ecclesiastes. And so each verse doesn't necessarily connect with the other before or after it, unlike they have up to this point where he is beginning to walk through or had been walking through uh, a, a concepts and principles and then giving us, well, here's a story to think about. Here's the guy who had a, who had a bad descendant and his son was just going to squander all of his wealth. Let me, let, me, let me apply this principle of inheritance to that story. Well, he really moves out of that type of style into one which is much more similar to how he writes in the book of Proverbs. And so that's why we end up with a nine-point sermon. Because in the first 14 verses of Ecclesiastes chapter 7, there's nine different big ideas that he wants to communicate that begin to address and answer the two rhetorical questions that he ends chapter 6 with. So let's read those questions. Let's go to the end of chapter 6, then we're going to pray, and then we'll hop into chapter 7, and we'll consider the nine different things that Solomon puts his focus and attention on. For those of you that are note-takers, or perhaps just wanting a way to helpfully follow along, um, tried to be extra helpful for you this week in the bulletin in giving you all nine points so that you don't even have to write those down. They're there. You can get some lines to write in the other fun facts if you find fun facts are shared. But those nine things are there for you ahead of time. So let's look at those two questions that Solomon ends chapter 6 with. And then we'll hop in to the text this morning. For who knows what is good for a man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? 
So there's these two questions Solomon ends chapter 6 with. And from a perspective that is just simply one that observes what is here on earth and doesn't take into consideration anything else that God may have said in his word or anything else that we have learned just from a perspective that observes life, which is where Solomon would use the phrase under the sun, Solomon's saying, look, we're not going to be able to discern what happens after somebody dies, which leads us to then ponder and wonder, okay, if life until he dies is vanity, what good is there to actually accomplish? And he's going to answer those questions beginning then in chapter 7. And so those become very important things for us to consider as well. We have a perspective that allows us to understand what is the end and what God is going to do. And we, we can go to Revelation 21 and 22 and figure out what the end looks like, but it still leaves us with a question, well, what is good for us to do between now and then? What's good for us to focus on? And so Ecclesiastes 7 ends up being this gift to us to guide and focus and direct our attention as we are moving to that end, knowing what the final end will be, but yet can still honestly and genuinely wonder what is good for us to focus on until we get there. And so Solomon begins to answer those questions for us. So let's pray, go for the Lord and just ask him to work in his word and in our hearts this morning. God, we ask that you would do just that, that you would work through your word in our hearts this morning. God, as we look at these nine different things about what is good for us to do, as you, as you so directed Solomon to, to answer these questions that he ended chapter 6 with, um, that, that don't just leave us with this idea that life is vain, but it, all, it, it can have a purpose and there, there can be good things for us to focus our attention on. And God, we pray that you would help us to see these, help us understand these principles, these Nine different things that Solomon's going to expose for us. God, help us to see how these all, these all pull and tie in and, and, and make sense in, in regards to what our mission is and what you've, you've called us as a, as a church and as individuals to do, and, and that being to glorify you by being disciple-making disciples. God, I pray that you'd help us to see how this wisdom that Solomon will share can indeed be leveraged to that pursuit. And so God, help us to not just conclude that these nine things are the, the really easy way to have a, a good, easy, prosperous life and, and just fail in regards to everything else Solomon has said for us and to us. But how these nine things make such a critical difference in the accomplishment of the mission and what it is that you want us to direct our focus to and spend our days doing. And so we thank you for Jesus who came and laid down his life so that we don't have a life just under the sun lived in vanity. but we can have a life of meaning and purpose. We can have an abundant life as Jesus himself even identified that he came to give. And God, we pray that you'd help us to see how what you have said this morning makes a difference in that. 
And we pray this in the good name of Jesus. Amen. Well, let's go to verse 1 of chapter 7, and you'll be able to see on your notes page, and we'll just kind of follow along in brief detail on the screen what the first thing to do. Essentially, all nine of these things are answers to the question, what is good? So what is good? What is wise and good for you and I to focus on? And the first one that Solomon gives us is character. You and I are It's it's wise and it's good for us to focus on character. Let's see what he says in the text there. Verse 1, a good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of birth. A good name is better than precious ointment. Now, for you and I, we're going to read that verse, and we're not going to quite understand why a good name is better than the bottle of perfume that we have sitting on our dresser, or why it's better than the stick of Old Spice that I have in my bathroom cabinet. We're not going to understand that because ointment or oil or precious smelling things for us are fairly common. You can go to Bath and Body Works, probably get a headache because there's so many different options for you to smell, and they have coffee beans in there for you to like clear your scent palette and before you go on to the next scent. And, and work your way through the store. Well, the idea of precious ointment was something that was quite precious and costly in this society. And it was a symbol for joy. If you had it, you were, you were identified as a joyful person. It became a symbol and, and something that also identified you as being a prosperous person because it cost a lot of money. So if you had ointment or this precious nard it might have been. It was probably some type of oil that was perfumed and then it might have been hardened. It might have stayed in liquid form and there's some different examples of each but it would have given off a scent. One commenter wrote this in regards to how they would have understood ointment in these times. Banqueters and the ancient world were often treated by a generous host to fine oils that would be used to anoint their foreheads. This provided not only a glistening sheen to their countenance, but also would have added fragrance to their persons and the room. So at this point, I would like to invite all of you early next week to our essential oils bar, which is going to be set up in the foyer, right? No, we're not going to put an essential oils bar in the foyer. But like we're running around putting oil on ourselves because for similar reasons, but that oil is not nearly costly like it would have been and would have been a sign of prosperity for this people group at this point in time in history. And so Solomon says, look, a good name is better than precious ointment. Well, in the Old Testament and even in the New as well, the idea of somebody's name is an idea that references who they are. It's an idea that references their character. Solomon is going to tell us this in Proverbs 22 verse 1, a good name is to be chosen rather than good riches. If you have the choice between wealth And a good name, character, take the name. And favor is better than silver or gold. And we have ideas like this in our society. We have an expression, his name is mud. It's an expression that communicates that somebody's name or their character has been impugned. They have done something, whatever that something is, that allows their character to be assailed because of their actions. And so... We don't use it a whole lot anymore, but it's one that we'd at least be somewhat familiar with, that their name is Mud. 
But Solomon tells us that a good name is better than precious ointment. What is good for us to do? Well, it's good for us to focus on character. It's good for us to focus on character. And how is the day of death better than the day of birth? Well, regardless of the hope and fanfare that something or someone begins with, the end of something usually reveals what is true about that person or about that thing. And I think that's what Solomon intends for us to understand by this idea here. That usually the day of birth is filled with great celebration and excitement and joy. And there's all sorts of really good reasons why all of that is true. And he's not discrediting any of that. But in the context of your character, in the context of how you've lived your life, what happens at the end that you can look back and then evaluate is far greater than all the hopes and dreams that were a part of the beginning. Let's think about it in this way. My last day as your pastor matters far greater than my first day mattered. And there was a lot of excitement on the first day. I mean, we rolled in that evening. There was a banner. There was a pantry stocked with all sorts of food. There was people there to help us unload our gigantic trailer and then all four of the vehicles that we had packed full of stuff. We had no idea how much stuff we had until we had to find a way to fit it in a cross-country trip. As awesome as that first day was, my last day matters a whole lot more because that last day is going to probably reveal what the character and quality of all the days between the first and the last were actually about. There's negative examples of this in in people's lives, quite frankly. I mean, there's stories that you can find on the internet that that reveal that, you know, grandpa had an affair, had a hidden mistress for... 20, 30 years, and we didn't know until we found all the, the notes or whatever it might have been when we went into his attic and cleaned out stuff. I mean, there's some neg- negative examples that we can see illustrating this, but there's also positive ones. There's also positive ones because you have, you have also the stories where, you know, you, you find the, the box of love notes that Grandpa wrote Grandma in the attic that she had just been filing away. And you realize how much more they had than you ever thought and understood they had. I think that's part of the idea that Solomon wants us to understand here. When he wants us to focus on character and consider that the end of a thing, that the day of death is better than the day of birth. Because the day of death reveals what has been. All the hopes, all the dreams, all the ideas of what can be are now revealed in probably full of what has been, and that's, that's the day that matters because in the context of character, you've moved past what will be and you've stepped into what actually is or what actually was. So Solomon, firstly, in thinking through what is good for us, the few days of our lives, wants us to focus on character. Secondly, he moves in to say then we are to live with death in mind. Look at verses 2 to 4 with me, please. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. 
The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. Here Solomon is telling us that you and I, what is good for you and I is to live with death in mind. And he does so in vivid language, telling us that the funeral is better than the party. The funeral is better than the party. We're to live with death in mind. And goes so far to say that the living lay it to heart. And he gives us his explanation of why it's better or why it's good for us to live with death in mind. Go to the very middle of verse 2. For this is the end of all mankind. Solomon's just telling us, look, one day you're going to end up there. And those who are living, those who are wise, what is good to do is to pay attention and to consider and to pause that one day this will be me. And then allow your life to be adjusted and corrected by those moments. Have you ever been to the funeral of a godly man or woman? And heard perhaps testimony of how they served or how they loved people or what they did. And and usually it's in those moments that, that stuff becomes known that perhaps previously had been unknown where, you know, well, she, she did this and she wrote me notes for X number of years encouraging me. And, and nobody else in the room knows that except the one person who stands up to share. Right, let me tell you what this guy did when nobody else was watching. He was doing this behind the scenes and, and nobody else knew until it shared. I mean, in some ways, this illustrates the exact point that Solomon made in verse 1 as well. But you're sitting in that room, which quite frankly, last year was this room for several ladies. And you sit in that room, you sit in this room, and have you ever had that moment where you're able to go, I, I want that to be my story. Like, I, I want to end, end that way. You know, maybe the specific events around what caused death, quite frankly, may have been premature. Could have been difficult. It could have been a surprise. But you sit there and you're confronted in a really good way with somebody who had lived their life for the Lord, serving and loving people. And you're able to step back and you go, I want to be like her. I want to be like him. This is what Solomon's wanting us to understand. And this is why those who are wise, those who are living, lay it to heart. And this is how then sorrow is better than laughter. And how then sadness of face makes the heart glad. Because as difficult as that day is, as difficult as those days of grieving are, When you have the opportunity to celebrate the life of somebody who has been a godly man or woman, you're able to step back and go, I want to do what they did. Because they loved Jesus well. They loved people well. They served tirelessly. They they poured themselves out. And I want to be like that. I want that to be my story also. And so Solomon tells us it's actually wise for us 
to go and spend time in the house of mourning. Solomon's telling us, look, the wise pay attention to the pain. But the fool distracts himself from the pain. The heart of the wise is in the heart of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. The fool just wants to, to not think about it. It's going to be easier to, you know, it's going to be easier to get, get the friends together and, 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 you know, go somewhere and just distract ourselves than it is to consider the difficulty that grief and death bring, but what we are capable of learning through those difficult moments. So what is good for us? Well, secondly, it's to, run, or it's to live with death in mind. We're going to end up there one day. And Solomon says those who are wise are going to spend the days up till that day with full view on that day. We live with death in mind. What is good for us to do? Thirdly, it's to ignore the praise of fools. To ignore the praise of fools. Verses 5 and 6. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the songs of fools. For, and here's the explanation, here's the reason why. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of fools. This is also vanity. Now, parents, we love this verse for our kids, right? Like, listen to me, not them. We love that. Ignore the fools that you have in your life. Listen to mom and dad because we have wisdom. We may not be nearly as uh, excited about it for ourselves. But Solomon's telling us, look, you ignore the praise of fools. And really, the praise of fools is going to be loud. It's going to have much clamor and laughter with it. This verse, this idea is, is really at the heart of discipleship. It's at the heart of the, the process of becoming more like Jesus. Because to, to, to hear the rebuke of the wise is to hear that you know, there's some things that we still need to work on. Where the praise of fools is just going to continue to cheer you on to that destructive end. I believe it's 1 Timothy 3.12 that the Apostle Paul says that bad people will go from bad to worse. And they will cheer one another on and celebrate the destruction that they are heading towards. And there's just hundreds of examples of how we see this playing itself out in our culture today. As believers, the, the fixed standard of wisdom for us, which is what the Apostle Paul was writing about in 1 Timothy 3, is God's Word. And that's the context of what he says in verse 12, where he says, look, evil people are going to go from bad to worse, and they're going to be deceived, and they're just going to keep deceiving one another. It's going to be a, a cycle of deception, where all they're going to do is just continually tell each other, you're okay, keep doing what you're doing, it doesn't matter, you're on a good path, and yet what they're on is a destructive evil path. And what he does right after that, he goes, but you, Timothy, don't. Don't forget the ancient word that you have been taught by your grandmother and your mother. For the word of God is breathed out by God 
And it accomplishes some very purposeful things, one of them being rebuking. It's an opportunity for you and I to step back and go, okay, the the choices that I'm making, the direction that I'm heading is not a direction that is going to honor the Lord or make me more like Jesus. And the rebuke of the wise is a tremendous gift. To be sure, it's much more difficult to hear the rebuke of the wise than it is the song of fools. Solomon says that it's better to ignore the praise of fools, hear the rebuke of the wise. And here's the word picture that he gives to us to think about. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of fools. The idea there is that um, fire would have been fairly quickly started by thorns. There would have been perhaps some really bright, intense light as they began to burn, and there would have been a lot of noise, a lot of popping that took place as the thorns began to burn, but there wouldn't have been any substantial or sustained heat. So if you're trying to cook something over an open fire, and you use thorns, you're going to get a lot of noise, you're going to get a lot of light, and you're going to get a very short window of anything worth value, and what's going to happen is that you're not going to be able to cook that bread or boil that stew because it's without substance. That's the laughter of fools. It's without substance. It's become really common in our culture today, and you can hear it in in arguments that are made on TV, perhaps written in different articles and op-eds in the the paper. The, The phrase, the right side of history, gets tossed out a lot. And the idea there is that you know, if you, if you do these things or you take these positions, you know, we believe these positions are in line with the right side of history. And so, you know, 200 years from now, history is going to evaluate what we decided and we're going to see that our decision was, was right because we're on the right side of history. And quite frankly, in a lot of the cases in which that phrase is used, that is the chorus of the fools, in my opinion. Because oftentimes what is being championed is a movement away from God's word and his fixed standard of what wisdom is. And the fools are really loud and they're going to make a lot of noise and they're going to give a lot of praise if you agree with them and they're going to give a lot of criticism where you don't. Solomon wants us to ignore the praise of fools. What is good for us To do is to ignore the praise of fools. And here in Proverbs 27, he tells us that faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. Just consider the word pictures he's using there and just the the contrast that he's drawing. A friend gives wounds, which sure, will hurt. The enemy gives kisses. What is good for you and I to do? It's to ignore the praise of fools fools. Next, what is good for you and I to do? Number four, it's to be diligent to hold or to uphold justice. And to be quite honest, verse seven is a really difficult verse to try to unpack and understand what it means. And so I'm going to give you my best guess, my best idea as to what this means, but then we're just going to keep on moving because it's quite a difficult verse for us to try to tackle. He says this, surely oppression, and some of you have a translation that's going to say extortion, which is probably a better word there. 
Surely oppression or extortion drives the wise into madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. So I think the idea here for us is to be diligent to uphold justice. Now, if you are wise and have put yourself in a position to be extorted, there's probably been a lack of wisdom somewhere along the way that led to a compromise on your part that has now allowed somebody to extort you because of the compromise that you made. In the same way, if you are a wise person and find yourself at a point in time where you're willing to accept a bribe, there's probably already been a lack of wisdom employed in your life that has brought you to that point. And the corruption of your heart is just a continuance. It's just a furthering of the corruption and foolishness that has already begun to creep itself or creep into you. And so I think Solomon here wants us to just consider to be diligent to uphold justice. Be very wise. I mean, let's not give people opportunities to extort us. That's wise. Let's be very careful that our hearts aren't seeking out and searching for bribes. Number five, what is good for us to do? This is very, very similar to verse one. He, I believe, wants us to consider taking The long view. Verse 8, better is the end of a thing than its beginning. And the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. I think Solomon wants us to consider that taking the long view is good for us to do. That the end is better than the beginning. Just consider this, and I had to learn this as I was training for the, the Borough Half Marathon. That how I ended the race was a whole lot more important than how I started. So when you're, you're staring down the barrel at a, a half marathon, so it's 13.1 miles, I mean, I, I could go out and run a really quick mile, but I'm not going to be able to sustain that pace for any length or consistency, and that's how I used to run. When Carrie and I first got married, I, I, I could play basketball for hours, but you put me just with a, just a track in front of me, I would rather, quite frankly, die a slow death. Because running felt like a slow death that I was dying. And so we, we never actually in our marriage have been able to run together. Because at that point, uh, I would just run as fast as I could. Would, would go for like a mile and then just be done. And I'd have nothing left. And so then I, I, I get here to the borough. And quite frankly, the, the hills were really, really challenging to adjust to. And then somebody convinced me that running a half marathon sounded like a great idea. And so now we've got to really stretch the conditioning here. And I had to learn some things. Had to learn that how I ended this race was far more important than how I began. Very similar to the ideas that Solomon says in verse 1. And how the day of death is better than the day of birth. And he goes on and he tells us that. The patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. And I think the idea here is that the patient in spirit, or excuse me, the proud in spirit can be guilty of, of forcing the issue. The proud in spirit can, can in, in many ways say, you know what, I got this. I don't have to wait. I'm just going to make it happen. They perhaps could be accused at times of being a bull in a china shop. and just, They're just going to get things done. And this was Peter. This was Peter. And think about what he had to say to Jesus when Jesus asks him, 
who do people say that I am? And Peter responds rightly, you're the Christ, you're correct, and I'm going to die. And what does Peter do? He pulls Jesus aside and begins to tell him all of the reasons why that's a terrible idea. And there's, I think, another example, even from the scriptures, of where the proud in spirit is not a good thing. But the patience in spirit is. Solomon wants us to take the long view. This past Thursday night, the elders met and we were considering um, some recent events in light of this verse, quite frankly. Um, We got a letter last week from the county that has denied our claim or our application for tax exemption on the auxiliary building. And so we met and we were scheduled to meet anyways and so the timing was was really good. And so we're we're sitting down and we're we're beginning to discuss and consider what it is that we're going to do, what what's you know a next step if you will. And quite frankly, I think these verses, this idea here verse 8 matters really a tremendous amount in in guiding and directing and giving wisdom to what we do next. And the idea of taking the long view of considering that you know what it doesn't doesn't only matter that we get to a destination, but it also matters how we get there. And being patient in spirit as opposed to proud in spirit is one thing that God clearly says is better. And one thing that we wanted to have guide and guard our direction as we considered what the next steps were. And so let me give you some of the next steps in regards to the auxiliary building. And this is an application that just Thursday night, your elders were working through in this text. We're going to firstly try to work to understand um, what the law does say and why we were not given a tax exemption. And so we're going to try to find some individuals who have a little bit more smarts and a little bit more experience than we do. And we're going to just ask some questions about, can you help us understand this? As we read the law, we disagree with the decision. But we want to make sure that we're reading it correctly. We want to make sure we understand it correctly and not just charge in and say, well, you're wrong. And, you know, you let's, let's ask questions. Let's be patient but patience doesn't mean inactivity, and so we want to understand why we were denied. We want to be able to ask some questions, and then we want to begin pursuing at some point the process of reapplying and seeing if we can't work some of those things out with the county. One of the things that we know we need to do in this building is we need to begin the process of cleaning it. We need to begin the process of some minor renovation work inside of it. And it's been set up for a bank for years, and we've begun to use the building, and our creative teams have been begun to use the building, and some BBS stuff is going to begin um, really using that in, in the development of sets and different things for ministry, but there's some things that need to happen inside of it that makes it even more available for use, and there's just some cleaning that needs to happen. It just needs a good scrub, and so we're going to begin scheduling some, some opportunities for you to come down with a sponge and a spray bottle and scrub some walls and clean some floors and we're going to try to begin making some of those minor changes in the inside of the building so that we can use it even for more ministry opportunities. 
one of the things as well that we know needs to happen in that building is it needs a brand new um, outdoor unit for the heating and cooling system. And we've we contacted um, one local plumber, and we've got a quote. John's going to be working at getting some alternate quotes as well. Um, but we're looking at about a $7,000 need to replace that part, which is going to let us have the right ventilation throughout the building so that we don't continue getting mold and different things come the summer months when the temperature will shoot. And having moisture and warm moisture in a building, it's not the greatest thing. So we need to get air moving through there and, and get some of those things addressed and taken care of as well. And so we want to take, take a patient view on this, not a proud view, but we don't think that patience means inactivity either. So we're, we're asking the Lord to give us some answers to the questions that we have, help us understand what, why and, and maybe what things need to change and adjust because we think that building should be tax exempt and, and because of how we're using it and the plans that we have for use for it. But we also know there's, there's some cleaning that needs to be done on the inside of it and there's some, there's some major components to its heating and cooling system that need replaced and fixed. And so one of the things that we want to do is actually schedule then a special business meeting on April 2nd. So it's the Sunday before Palm Sunday and we want to ask you as the congregation for consideration, input, approval of taking an interest-free loan, if need be, to pay for the heating and cooling unit. We've had an individual in the church tell us that they would give us the money, interest-free, to address those issues, the issues of that building. And so we're asking for you to consider those things as well because we know they need to be fixed. We know they need to be cared for. And right now we're in a, an okay position because of how cold it is outside. But as the summer months come, that needs to get addressed. Now, we could avoid the loan completely if between now and April 2nd, the Lord led you to give and we had the money we needed, which is certainly an option. Or we could consider taking the difference between what has been given and what would still be needed. But we know we want to use this building for ministry. We don't want it just sitting empty, and we believe at the end of last year in the town hall meetings that we had, and, or the town hall meeting that we had, and then how those things began to just transpire throughout, that the Lord was not telling us to tear it down. He was indeed leading us to take it off the market and pursue tax-exempt status for it. And we are committed at this point to do so. And so there's some other things that come along with that. We need to get down there with some sponges and we need to clean. And we need to get some things in that building taken care of. We've got to address this part as well. And so verse 8 of Ecclesiastes chapter 7 was one that I think in many ways was tremendously helpful this past Thursday night for the elders, we began considering what it was the Lord want us to, would want us to do. And just the idea of taking the long view. Taking the long view that, you know, how we, how we achieve tax-exempt status is just as important as achieving it or getting it from the county. And, and making wise decisions along the way. Well, 
part of that wisdom is taking the long view. Being patient and not proud. But we don't believe patient means inactive. So there's some things for us to do to be active as we wait for the Lord and ask for Him to continue working and helping us understand some things as we eventually at some point seek reapplication to ask the county to consider it again. But we want to take the long view. We want to hear what Solomon is saying to us. We want to listen. So number six, what is it good for us to do? Don't let anger control you. Solomon says this in verse 9, Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the bosom of fools. Anger is an appropriate response to sin, but it can quickly lead to sin itself. Paul says this in Ephesians 4.26, Be angry and do not sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. It's a very, very parallel idea. Be not quick in your spirit, verse 9, to become angry. For anger lodges in the bosom of fools. What is good for us to do? Don't let anger control you. Don't let anger control you. Be not quick to become angry. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. What is good for us to do? Verses 10 and 11, number 7 on your notes page, is to keep our eyes looking forward. Keep our eyes looking forward. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For or because it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Now let's just note something as Solomon is is giving us this bit of instruction. He prohibits a focus on former days as better days. But I do not believe he is prohibiting the recognition that those days may indeed have been better days. Solomon's saying that your focus is to not be on what was in consideration of how those were better. He wants us to keep our eyes looking forward. I think this is in large part because Solomon has clearly told us and did so in chapter 3 of Ecclesiastes that God makes everything beautiful in its time. To just simply think that the former days were better than today's day ignores what God's doing today. Which he has clearly said, God is doing something. Now it may be unknown to you at this point. You may not have an idea what it is God is doing, and it may not feel like it's a better day. But he wants us to keep our eyes looking forward. I have a fondness for my first car, a 1995 Mercury Sable. And I can tend to over-romanticize that fondness and just pick out the good things about it. And there weren't many, it's a short list, but it was my first car, you know? So there's, there's like an emotional thing there. I love the way it started, I, like just crazy stupid, I know. But like when you turned it over, like the sound from the starter that it made. And our van, our blue van, until we sold it, made that same sound. And it just like every time, it like had a little smile on my face, all right? But I, I, tend, to, I tend to pick up on those things and, and love that car. 
and all of the different modifications that I made to it along the way, which I will tell you was instrumental in me winning the heart of my wife, okay? She would disagree. All right, fair enough. Fair enough. But I tend to forget the fact that when I hit the accelerator, there was a good second and a half between action and response. I, I like my Buick a whole lot more. But I like that car. And Solomon's just telling us to not, not get caught up in thinking that what was, was the best, and that what is now is not somehow being used by God in profound ways. That God's somehow not right now making all things beautiful. And so let's be careful to not over-romanticize the past, because what we can tend to do is we can just tend to focus on what was really good and forget about some of the challenges. And then when we're faced, when we're faced with today's challenges, we, we tend to ignore the good. And so we can get ourselves a bit fickle in considering all of what felt good compared to what now may feel difficult. And Solomon's telling us, keep your eyes looking forward. God's doing something today. He's making something beautiful happen out of today's day. Focus there. Don't pine away for the days that have gone by. Number 8, verses 11 and 12, he wants us to understand that we're to not neglect wisdom. Don't neglect wisdom. Wisdom is good with an inheritance. It's an advantage to those who see the sun. So it's not that an inheritance is bad, but wisdom's really good when you get an inheritance. Think about the, the prodigal son. He had an inheritance and he had no wisdom. And what did he do? He blew it all. He squandered all of it. Wisdom's good. Don't neglect wisdom. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. And the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Solomon's there recognizing two things. One is just a very easily observable recognition of life. If you have Excuse me. If you have means, means to buy food, means to buy clothing, means to buy a dependable vehicle, if you have means, there's a certain level of protection that you have. If you have a car that gets you from A to B and it has a roof on it and has all those things, you're not walking in the snow. You're protected in some sense. Well, wisdom protects. And it protects in similar ways as money does. And wisdom preserves. So don't neglect it. And lastly, number nine, what is it good for us to do? Don't forget God. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful. In the day of adversity, consider. God has made the one as well as the other so that man may not find anything that will be after him. Solomon, lastly, at least in this section, verses 1 to 15, 14, is wanting us to not forget God, not neglect God. Consider his work. He's doing something. It may feel like a, a windy, bendy, twisty, crooked road where you would rather have preferred it just to be a straight shot from A to B, but he's doing something. And consider 
what it is that he's doing. When you have prosperous days, be joyful. When you have painful days, consider that God has made them both. And he's done so with a purpose. Now, if we allow ourselves to go beyond the Son and out of Ecclesiastes, we know what that purpose is. That purpose is to make us more like Jesus. And that purpose is very, very purposeful. And God is doing things in us and through us and for us to lead us because He has promised that the good work that He started, He will carry through to the day of Christ Jesus and complete. And Solomon doesn't want us to forget God, not to neglect God. And so we'll end this morning just considering those truths and that truth in particular. And even thinking through the song and the lyrics of the song of, Lord, I need you. Every hour, I need you. It's an appropriate way to end where Solomon leaves us at the end of verse 14 and considering that we're to not forget or not neglect God because he's doing something. But God promises and he instructs us, he commands us to draw near in our time of need because as we do, we find the grace and mercy that we need. And so he invites and commands us to come close. And we're able to come close because of what Jesus has done. And so we can sing Lord, I need you in faith and in great hope because he has promised to provide exactly what we need as we come to him and ask for his provision.